Coming up on Tech Nation, William Gibson. You may well know him from his books, including his first, Neuromancer, the 1984 novel and winner of multiple awards, cementing the genre of cyberpunk. You might also know him as the person who coined the term cyberspace. He'll tell us how it happened and how its meaning has changed. A writer of speculative fiction, he's here today with Agency, the second book in what he calls the Peripheral Trilogy. All this and more coming up on this week's Tech Nation. Let's take five with Moira Gunn. This is Five Minutes. One of my favorite experiences about having teenage sons comes from Dick Maltzman in Palo Alto. Years ago, when his sons were teenagers, he announced, I knew the exact moment that I had earned too much money. One of my sons drove one of my Mercedes into another one of my Mercedes, driven by another one of my sons, and they did it in my own driveway. Well, who could argue with that? I hadn't thought of this incident for years, decades in fact, but it popped into my head when I read the Washington Post headline, Self-Driving Cars Nearly Collide in California, News Service Says, Google Denies Reports. It finally occurred to me that Dick's kids must have had a flock of denials at the ready, as teenage boys always do. But Google? Well, for starters, this was a near collision, not an actual one. According to a real live human traveling in one of the cars, the car he was traveling in was preparing to change lanes when the other driverless car cut them off, forcing abandonment of the lane change. This gets better all the time. Did the passengers in their respective driverless cars yell at each other and make hand gestures? What the heck happened anyway? According to Reuters, the first car, an Audi equipped by Delphi Automotive with lasers, radar, cameras, and special computer software, was getting ready to make a lane change. It was the second car, a Lexus from Google, which did the cutting off, if you're to believe the passenger. And why not believe the passenger? It was John Absmeyer, Global Business Director for Delphi Automotive's Automated Driving Program. One driverless car spotted another? You don't think these two cars were playing chicken, do you? The key to all this may be that the second car is described as having similar hardware and software. The use of the term similar when it comes to hardware and software is a sucker bet. They're designed to do the same things, but they're built by two different teams of humans. That means the logic is different, and in any set of circumstances, the two will act differently count on it. This may be the first incidence in the wild of one manufacturer's driverless technology coming up against another. And frankly, I think they did well. There was no collision.
Since the Audi from Delphi had a driver in the driver's seat as backup, if he or she wanted to chase after the other car in response, he could. You know that dumb cut-off payback move where you get in front of the car that cut you off and keep putting on your brakes for no reason? I don't think that's an automatic option on either car's computer. But if you can manually take over the steering wheel, you've got it made. Seven companies are testing some 50 driverless cars in the state of California, and the state recently released its first-ever report regarding related accidents. To date, not a single driverless car has been at fault. But someday, it has to happen. Two driverless cars from different manufacturers will collide. And then, well, there has to be a fault. I wish with all my heart that Dick Maltzman would be there to witness it. After all, Delphi's two Audis and Google's 20 Lexuses. Forget who's at fault. Maybe they just have way too much money. I'm Moira Gunn. This is 5 Minutes. Five Minutes is produced at the studios of KQED-FM in San Francisco. Five Minutes is a production of Tech Nation Media. I'm Paul Lancourt. From San Francisco, I'm Moira Gunn, and this is Tech Nation. Today on Tech Nation, William Gibson. You may know him from his books, including Neuromancer, his 1984 novel. A writer of speculative fiction, he's here today with Agency, the second book in the Peripheral Trilogy. And now, William Gibson. Well, William, welcome back to Tech Nation. Well, thank you for having me. Now, your latest novel is Agency, and I became fascinated with the word almost immediately. Now, this is not an advertising agency, but it's a different definition of agency, the ability of a person to act on his or his own behalf. Yes, and it's, it's it. I found it interesting it was an interesting word that way, and in that we so seldom use it in that other sense. And I also was, of course, delighted when when I Googled for agency as a book title, nothing. If you Google for the agency, you could have a whole library of books called the agency. And, and people are actually calling it the agency, or, you know, maybe ten percent of somehow they're not getting the picture. Actually, they didn't read the book. <laughs> no, they 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 didn't read the book. Well, part of my fascination with the word in this day and age is my own perspective on agency, and now I'm seeing pseudo agency, which you don't use in the book, but we now have 
smartphones and immediate access to the internet. We can use an app to order a car or anything else. And that shows agency. We can do that, a very simple act. But we all know about information. It gives networks around us and organizations and whoever wrote the app agency for their ability to act. That's Indeed. a catch. Indeed, yes. That's quite that's quite true. And it's one of those little things that wasn't foreseen by some of my more digitally enthusiastic readers back in back in the early days. I was amazed by this first wave of people who turned up and said to me, look at this business I've gotten into because I read your your novel Neuromancer. It's going to change everything for the better. I thought, oh, did you read my book? Like, what (laughs) is... Could you just drop the last three words? Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. But I think that's a really good point. You've been doing this for, what is it, 35 years now. Neuromancer was 1984. Yeah. Artificial intelligence played a strong role in Neuromancer. Uh, AI is playing a strong role today. How's it changed? And I'm not talking about technically. How's your perspective changed about artificial intelligence? Well, I I don't know if my perspective really, really has changed that much. Because I'm not, I'm not really a very technical writer. I'm I'm someone who deconstructed the the technical language poetically, deconstructed the poetic language I happened to encounter fairly early on when I I happened through <coughs> science fiction conventions to meet quite a few people who were working in the beginning of of the digital industry in in Seattle. <clears throat> and so the first time I heard the word interface used as an active verb, I mean my pop my pulp fiction poetry meter just went off. <laughs> just you know it broke. I mean, that's so hot. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and I would collect those things and take them, take them home, and and you know, take them apart, and turn them into a kind of of prose poetry <clears throat> for the you know flashier parts of science fiction stories I, I was writing. And I think basically I'm I'm still doing it. Eunice the AI in, in agency isn't at all a new sort of character for me. The, Eunice is sort of like the AIs I've always had. But now, she, I gather she seems a little bit more likely because she's an AI human hybrid. She's, she's an uploaded human consciousness who's, who's been augmented with the best AI has to has to offer, and it, you know, so she she's sort of she's sort of post human, but it's basically what I I think 
what I've always been doing. I mean, I'm, I'm not someone who, who hangs on every every announcement of what's new in AI. And if I did, I would scarcely understand any of it. Well, you are, what do we call it, speculative fiction. Yes. So you're speculating on mm-hmm. this. And maybe just a little ahead. What does this mean? What would? And you're not limited by, or what exactly what it, does it do today and what might it do tomorrow? Yeah. So and, yeah. And when Neuromancer first came out, the uh, I went to a science fiction convention and, and the... the there were science fiction writers there who were like the hard science crew, very scientifically literate and and proud that their fiction was. And they said, yeah, you know, I, I read your book, but none of that's, you know, that's all impossible. And I said, why? And they said, there'll never be enough bandwidth. You're like, what's bandwidth? Yeah. And, yeah no, like, that's uh, another one. Let's see, what yeah, is that? And, but, you know, bandwidth turns out to be a thing that's sort of infinitely <laughs> increased over the past 30, 35 years. And so, you know, I was freed up because I, I didn't care about the bandwidth. Well, one of the things that I like about Eunice is what is so important about robots. I mean, people say, well, why are robots so popular in industrial situations. It's like because they work 24 hours a day and they work seven days a week and they don't get tired, they don't need a break, you know, they don't have a union. It's like they just are what they are. And Eunice is not just walking around you as you say Siri or you say Alexa. She's there working all the time. You pass people on the street she tries to recognize your, their faces, and if not, she at least is recording them. She's going to see them again. She's looking around. She's doing all of these things that while you're just there, it's it's a different kind of personal AI. And she also doesn't know what she's doing, She what she's simultaneously doing. She's as she says, she's doing things behind her ba- own back that she has sub sub AIs all over the world constantly doing doing all the stuff that she hasn't even heard from yet. And sometimes when they turn up, she's totally surprised at some you know huge scam they've put together. I've been working on this for a while. What? Yeah. <laughs> on your behalf, and this is what we're doing. And she also doesn't know who who uh, knows what she's doing, um, although she tries to kind of shield it, you know, shut it down so they can't see. It's it's impossible. It's impossible. Yeah, and uh, I'm, I'm already looking forward to seeing more of her. There, there's a, a third unwritten and indeed unimagined volume of this in some sense, in 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 the works. And I, I'm, you know, looking forward to a lot more Eunice. Now, in terms of the technology coming for us and technology operating on our behalf, I liked what you were saying about Eunice goes, observe, orient, decide, and act. Yeah. That's certainly something you could program. I know, but that's uh, Boyd's... O-O-D-A loop, you know. Uh, so 
It's it's kind of a ba- it's it's a real it's a real primal thing. And I figured it would serve her very well indeed. Now she's not the only one that is the only character you have in this book. Let's talk about the humans. Well, the 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 uh you know when it, when the book that this was initially intended to be, the book that was conceived before the November 2016 election, I, I had pitched to my publisher as a romp, a, a satiric romp through, through Silicon Valley. <clears throat> and at one point I, I told them that I told them, you're going to love it. It's going to be like Thelma and Louise, but but upbeat. (laughs) On US 101. (laughs) And so, you know, I I had that, I had that, I had that rolling. And in that, I had kind of had, it felt to me like with Verity and Eunice, I had kind of one, they were the halves of, they were the co-protagonists to the piece, and, and but but that survived the morning after the election when I, I was looking over the manuscript and going, "Whoa, this zeitgeist doesn't even exist anymore. This won't make any sense emotionally, particularly not in a couple of years when it's when when it's published." So, you know, after a, a a lot of moping around. It came. It came to me that this could actually be a sequel to the Peripheral, which I hadn't planned on ever writing a sequel to. Which is, I've got a history of trilogies. Uh, yeah, I got this would be the first non-trilogy, of, but it uh, turns out. <laughs> yeah, well, every one of them has been started as the first non-non-trilogy, really, including Neuromancer, but. Um, one, you know, once I once I was there, that that still that still worked, but it was keeping it to. I realized that I got about a third of the way through agency as sort of as we know it today, and I realized that Eunice was actually Eunice and Verity were too much fun. Like the chemistry was too good for me to get to something else. I felt like I also wanted to get to just, you know, how <clears throat> how the new zeitgeist is making us all all feel. So you know, not to spoil anything, but I, I managed to get them apart for a while, and. As soon as I did, the tone of the thing changed because Verity's the the point of view character, and so you're you're seeing you're seeing the world of the book through the eyes of someone who has no more agency really than most of us do. Like most of us have scarcely any agency, at least in the sense of a, th- a genre thriller. 
because I realized that uh, in a genre thriller, the thing you're actually supposed to provide to the person who grabs one hurriedly off a rack at the airport and jumps on a plane is a point-of-view character who either has little agency or has a fair bit and somehow loses it, and who then, then manages to recover it and uses it to whop the bad guys but good. That's the basic, that's the basic move. And I knew I could have done that, but it would have just wound up being kind of a, a stylish science fiction inflected genre thriller. And, and I, I just, you know, the, the times were too serious. So I wound up with whatever kind of oddball construct we, you know, I'm now touring. <laughs> By the end of the tour, this description may change. No. Yeah. Well, <laughs> oh, it, well it actually will. It will change. The tours. I realized over the over the decades, the touring books for me is a part of the creative process, and it's the part of the process where I kind of realize and decide what the heck it was I just spent years doing. Because when I finish the book, I don't genuinely don't know. It's not as though I start from a plan to express something and then try. It's very exploratory, and the characters are far more in control than most genre writers would ever want their characters to be. You're listening to Tech Nation. I'm Moira Gunn, and my guest today is William Gibson. You may well know him from his books, including his first, Neuromancer, the 1984 novel, winner of multiple awards and cementing the genre of cyberpunk. A writer of speculative fiction, he's here today with Agency, the second book in what is now called the Peripheral Trilogy. Now, the first book in this trilogy is The Peripheral, as yeah. we said earlier, and we've got to go on to number three. And uh, I did notice that you've been writing these trilogies, I mean, a series of trilogies, um, and uh, except for one book, The Difference Engine with Bruce Sterling. Um, what's up with that, do you think? I mean, is this sort of... I mean, I'll just, I'll just say, yeah, what's up with that? I mean, well, there's one, uh, before I get to what might, might be, be up with it, there's a, a distinction I, I've been making when talking to people about a, agency, which I think is, is you know, it, it's a genuine distinction, is that this is the first time I've, the, the agency is the closest thing I've ever written to a sequel in in the most conventional sense. It's a bit weird because, in a way, it can also be read as a sort of prequel to Agency because of all of the, you know, the alternate time track business. But it's it's continue it continues the stories directly of a number of characters from the peripheral and other characters in the peripheral are referenced and you find out what they're currently doing, but you don't see them on on stage in this book. 
And that's something I've really never done. I've really never done before. The uh, my you know the kind of double barrel sequel that follows. It's got to be better than the last one. Well, it follow. I think it double barreled in the sense that that it's like I I've never planned on writing a three volume set of set of anything and in you know, the very last thing I did when I had the copy to the copy edited the the you know the type set of new of neuromancer this I forget what that's called but you know the proof copy they sent me to you know do corrections on the proof copy was I read it over one last time and I I got I got to the end and, and uh I took my, you know, blue pencil. And I wrote, and he never saw Molly again, and because I didn't want to go back there. I thought, well, I'm done with this thing. I don't want to go. I want to go back there. I want to write. I don't want to be one of these these guys with burgeoning sequelitis who, who are all too frequent. And I thought and. In genre SF, I'm going to go on and do something, do something completely different. And then, you know, over the next year or so, one thing or another happened. And I wound up writing Count Zero. And Count Zero is set in the world of Neuromancer a few years later, but quite, you know, only vaguely adjacent to the parts of that world that that we we see in Neuromancer. It's somebody else's story doing something else in another part of in another part of the of that in another part of that world. And Molly? Uh, and Molly is sort of in in the background. You know that the, at one point Molly becomes a like a fight promoter or something. I've forgotten myself, but <clears throat> and so that that's kept it that kept happening. Uh, it, it happened to me with um, with the bridge with the bridge trilogy. It uh, I I'm I know that when when I finished pattern recognition, I just thought. This is like a one-off. Surely I won't do that. I do this again, but I wound up. I wound up doing it, and I, you know, if I, if I took it to a really good therapist, I might be able to figure out <laughs> why it happens. But it's that. It's been that sort of an issue. But, but agency and the, it really is. I, like a, a a sequel to the peripheral, or I suspect it may be more like like a sort of universal joint that f- can function as a, a standalone novel when it, when it needs to, but will serve to connect the peripheral and something on. Un- Unwritten and as yet 
unimagined, in spite of anything that can happen in the meantime in the real world. I've been speaking with William Gibson. He's here today with Agency, the second book in what is called the Peripheral Trilogy. We'll talk more after a break. Podcasts of Tech Nation are available on NPR One by entering Tech Nation as one word on iTunes under Tech Nation Radio and many other podcast syndication outlets. In the second half of our show, William Gibson talks about coining the word cyberspace in his first novel, Neuromancer, and what's become of its meaning over the years. Stay with us. The Tech Nation, I've been speaking with speculative fiction writer William Gibson from his first novel, Neuromancer, in 1984 to the recently published Agency, the second book in what's called the Peripheral Trilogy. You know, it's funny because having having read some of these trilogies, um, they do remind me of uh, of life in that you can't write your life ahead of having lived it. You can't write the times instead of until they unfold. And so if you have it all committed what the arc of this story is, it doesn't happen that way. And so in yeah, that, yes, it, it unfolds. You it's, know. Really, it's, it's really true. That, that commitment to the arc of the story, commitment to the pre-existing story arc is so alien to the part of me that apparently can actually write fiction <laughs> that I would just never never think of it. I mean, the person you're speaking with right now, if that person were tasked with outlining a science fiction story, say for a screenplay even, which is usually, you know, simpler, the the result would not be good work. I just can't do that. And the part of it that I could never get over was that you were expected 
to go in and tell them how the whole thing went. And, you know, in order to, they would then invest in it and give you, give you some money and you'd go, you'd go away, go away and write it. And so I went, they said, this is what you have to do. So I would do it and I'd get home and I'd go, oh, wow, this is, now I see it. Like she should do this and he should go to China. I don't know. And I call them up the and they go, no, yeah, it's not, you know, no. They said, we, we'd have to have a meeting about that. And <clears throat> I know there are people who can work, work in that, in you know, within that protocol and do it, do it really well. Uh, but I'm just incapable, completely incapable of it. So I think the worst part of writing for me is, uh, the stuff that my emotions do to me uh, while you know while I'm writing it I'm going how did I get in a position where my family's food actually depends on this (laughs) well you did mention screenplay and I have to say ever since Neuromancer hit the bookstores in 1984 someone or some crowd after another has been trying to make a movie out of it or even a television series anything in video and it's never it's never made it to the screen well you know part of that may be because it actually it has made it to the screen and abundantly but in a million little pieces <laughs> in, in, a mil- in a million different in a, a, a million different movies to the extent that today, one of the things that would be most problematic in approaching Neuromancer to make a feature film, I think, is that it it's become a retro future. It's as much a retro future as the Flash Gordon serials I, I saw on television in the afternoon as cheap filler for the local channel. And these are things that my <clears throat> my parents had watched when in theaters when they were kids. And <clears throat> those are retro futures. And and so the the Neuromancer is a, a retro future now, <clears throat> but unlike the Flash Gordon serials, it's a retro future that that came true to some extent and that is like really odd and it's hard to know what to it's hard to know what to do with it and yet the peripheral the rights were bought by Amazon they're developing I don't know a series or a yeah, a set de- of whatever they're doing they're, they're developing a, a, a streaming se- their work has commenced on a, a streaming series of of the peripheral, and uh, you know, if depending on on how that how that goes, they would go into agency, perhaps. And that's a that's a possibility. It's that's an interesting it's an interesting thing. I I I don't know much about the process yet. I'm I'm learning I'm learning more about it, but I'm. <clears throat> trying to can uh, I'm trying to position myself so that whatever happens 
I'll be able to regard it as simply a stub of my book. (laughs) And now we're going to get back to your book and explain what stub is. Well, Bruce Bruce Sterling and Lewis Shiner, who are cyberpunk colleagues of mine in Austin, Texas, when cyberpunk first became a thing, wrote a story together called Mozart in in Mirror Shades. And in Mozart in Mirror Shades, the... uh, our world, or maybe our near future, has learned to physically time travel to the past, and they do it to to uh, rip off resources. Like they're going to go there and get all the wood, or they're going to go there and get all the coal. And the reason they can do it and avoid all of that messy time travel paradox stuff, according to Bruce and Lou, was that as soon as they reach the past, it's our past, but that never happened in our past. So it splits off and starts a separate timeline, which, you know, hypercapitalism is then free to pillage. (laughs) And, And I was always really impressed by that little change they made that got rid of the got rid of the paradox stuff. So it, it seemed like a, just a much more interesting interesting way to go. And when I was starting the peripheral, I knew there would be Flynn and her small southern town where she lives, which would be about ten years from now, maybe, and and that there would be some other faster and more powerful place. I didn't think necessarily in the future. I thought it would probably be Miami where there's more money and because there's more money in a way it is the future. They've got more technology and, and they, they've got more agency. And but one thing and another happened and and I wound up I wound up setting setting the other place where the bad guys are in in the twenty second in a twenty second century run run by the descendants of, of Russian oligarchs in, in London, <clears throat> and in in that twenty in that twenty second century, people people create these alternate continua, but physical time travel is impossible. But you can send an email. To the past, and when you're, the, you're or, or any kind of message, you could you can send any sort of digital communication to the past as far back as you can get it. But you're limited by existing infrastructure in 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 the past. And when it arrives, you get the the Sterling Shiner split. But in in the peripheral. Rich folks and just ordinary people too play with these things as though it's a game. They're they're able to create them through a mysterious server that no one knows anything about that may or may not be in China, and so people people constantly create them and mess with them and see what happens. And then then 
abandon them. And some people are sadists and try to create the, the worst worlds that ever ex- the worst earths that ever existed for humans 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 to live in and <clears throat> the world and but they call they call them stubs because being very recently created although they're potentially infinitely long being very recently created they're very short they're still very short they've only been around for a year or two or Two hours or however. It's one of your characters, Rainy, uh, recalling now that we were you were you had to sort of change your zeitgeist given the last election. She asks, What had to change to cause the opposite result in that election? And it wasn't just the US presidential election, it was also Brexit. Yeah. What had to change? And this is not about well, this many votes or anything. No, what truly had to change? So that would not that would not have been the outcome. No, no. And in the book, someone someone says, "Oh, it was you know, it was, it was obviously the level of, of Russian intelligence involvement." But but you know, we don't have the. She says we, you know, we we don't have the technology in that stub that would allow us to give you an exact you know percentage of what the. What the difference was, and my reaction—that actually came, comes from my own reaction to to that Brexit vote, because until I woke up and saw what the UK had voted for, I had been able to—I was looking at Donald Trump, Trump's campaign, and thinking, "Nah, it's not going to happen." <laughs> you know, it's too weird. It, we, no, that can't that can't happen. That's that would be too stupid. But as soon as I saw the UK, which I had always regarded as being kind of a little brighter in in some ways, do that. I thought, uh oh. I anything is possible. And and it you know, it really put the fear into me and, and you know, lo and behold. Agency. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, now, of course, you're you're well known for throwing in technologies, some of which you never see again, just happen to get thrown in at one point or another, um, and then others become part of the plot. And so, I'm not giving anything away uh, by saying there are two technologies that I really, I really kind of liked. One was uh, personal micro drones. I just thought those were so cool. Yeah, I don't know why we don't have those. Why? I mean, we do have we do have them, but they're just not that they're not that slick. Well, tell people what they are. They are very very small quadcopters. Like very small, like, like you know, smaller than. Uh, I almost said a pack of cigarettes, but people increasingly don't know what <laughs> what, that is. what size what size that is. What would it it's be? It's pretty small, thick credit card, maybe. <laughs> yeah, like half an iPhone, half a, a an old a tradition, you know, an old sized iPhone, and and they have, um, you know, they they've. Uh, <clears throat> 
dance video and video and audio and quite a long range and probably, you know, impossibly fantastically good battery time so that you can, you know, you can send them blocks away for for hour, hours on end and and control and control them at a, at a distance and see what they're seeing through your through through your glasses and they and they come back and dock with you yeah they'll find you again yeah they come back they come back and find you and <clears throat> you have a little uh you know like a small case a small case that they fly into and and recharge and recharge and those are really, those are really fun, fun to write, and it seems such an it seems such an obvious thing, but one of the things I found with this this book that surprised me was how even these sort of that's kind of a simple concept, <clears throat> but it's so difficult to render. It's much more difficult to render it. In a piece of prose fiction, where where you have a point of view character, so how, and and there are pages in agency, which I think are probably somewhat difficult to read, where there would be a three or a four way conversation going on, uh, but it could be like two people talking face to face, and one of them is simultaneously on an embedded personal telephone system. My he- second favorite technology. Hearing from, <laughs> hearing from two other different, different people. So it's simply as though she would be there with, say, today she could be there with an iPhone having a split screen thing, a two people two people on it talking to someone else and looking looking at the iPhone but when you unify it all and and imagine it as a completely embedded technology like this woman doesn't even know where her phone is it's not nowhere in particular in her body but she's got it and she's had it as long as she can remember being alive and she takes it takes it completely for granted it's and you could do it, I think you could do it on screen, but to do it in prose is it's really, really challenging. Like maybe one day there would be, you know, uh, optional, six optional different kinds of quotation marks. Well, you bold some things. Yeah, I mean, so, you, can, yeah, you get this sense, to, okay, I'm doing this, this is italics, this is here, yeah, this is normal. And you get I, yeah, it. You can see that, okay, this is different, but it's embedded within these conversations. And, you know, I say to people, who objects to you're watching a CNN or an MSNBC or a, or a Fox will be really great here for it. Everybody gets included here. And there is not a single one of these television outlets that, while you're watching them, they don't have a a, a running stream at the bottom with yeah. different information yeah. on it, constantly going across. Plus, they have times and what time and time zone. They got all kinds of stuff. Everybody has grown up, or mo- many people yeah. have grown up with video games that have all this different stuff on it, so that 
this integration of of information and in the case we were just talking about all the same source but different sources you know that's just another leap it's just another leap so if you think about it that way i think it i think it works but it, as you say it's hard to write about it in prose yeah it, it is without uh it's, it particularly is hard to write about it in prose without making a big deal of it, which, you know, without, like, constant exposition, which for me just destroys the whole pleasure of, of speculative, speculative fiction. It's like hiding the exposition. It is uh, making the exposition really inherent in the... The narrative has always been very, very important to me. And some of the simple stuff in agency was, it was doable, but it was really time-consuming. It was like I had to sort of have a separate effects department going to call in my own head that I could call on whenever I got to one of those, got to one, got to one of those things. Now you're on the docket for a, a third book, you know, and it's been six years since the peripheral. So how far do you think you can stretch out delivering this third book? Oh, you know, I don't want to stretch out delivering it at all. The um, the the long, well, I won't say gestation because I don't blame women who rightfully resent <laughs> <laughs> you are using male male writers, you know, co-opting, co co-opting that one. But it took, you know, it, it. Well, then we got deliver, but it took so long to finish, and it took so long to finish because it it was interrupted by a massive shift in in zeitgeist when. The book I was working on before was probably a year at most away from being completed. It just, it wasn't a heavy thing. Uh, and <clears throat> so agency tur turned into something, you know, something so much more uh, labor-intensive than I would, would ever have expected it, just, it it went very 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 slowly it's the longest i've ever spent writing writing anything and but i'm hoping that the next one will you know be you know come along relatively relatively more quickly in part because as i think i i've already said uh <clears throat> One of the things that was hard about building agency was building a piece of narrative that will allow me to go in absolutely any direction according to how the zeitgeist shifts again. And, you know, it's liable to, in the next couple of years, It's well, it's liable to shift more. Uh, and the, yeah, I kind of. <clears throat> it's most satisfying for me if if uh, if I think I've written something that initially feels 
like it belongs to the moment. That's the kind of, you know, the kind of weather we're having, that's harder now than, than you know, making, a, making up a, a future. Just, you know. Yeah. Because just uh, we need science fiction to articulate how we feel about right now, or I do in any case. Now, my recollection is in Neuromancer, that's the first time we saw the word cyberspace. Had anybody thought, did you ever think that that term would last all these years? No, but in another sense, I don't think you can say that it's lasted all these years because I scarcely ever see it used without air quotes. <laughs> you know, it, it, it's a kind of cornball. It died. <laughs> yeah, it's it's like a it's a kind of cornball thing. Ozone layer. <laughs> sometimes people, yeah, sometimes people use it, use it non parodically, <clears throat> and it's useful, but it's uh, usually what they're. What they're describing isn't anything remotely like what Neuromancer describes. There's actually a funny little scene in Neuromancer. There's a kind of, it's like a little weird little aside where Case just happens to overhear this infomercial or children's show or something that's on in the next room. And it's like this paragraph that says, cyberspace, blah, 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 blah. And, and it, it, uh, it's like it's teaching teaching children what what this thing what this thing is and <clears throat> what it does is it what that does is what i was trying to do was actually describe more like what i thought it would really be like because in 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 neuromancer say if if cyber if the cyberspace in Neuromancer was the highway in a Bruce Springsteen song, there would be like, you know, the highway, there'd be like love and death and loneliness and great speed and all that mythic stuff. And there would never be like uh, a big trailer truck hauling pig feed. <laughs> and and uh, UPS, there would never be what a highway really does, and and so there's that little bit of of uh, off-screen dialogue in Neuromancer, where it was me kind of going, you know, if this really existed, they'd do this kind of, they do, it would have like a lots of banal. Uses it would be doing we'd be doing everything we do. It wouldn't it wouldn't be sexy, it wouldn't be exciting. It would just be and and I'm glad I put that in because I'm glad I, I was. Uh, it makes me feel like I was sort of conscientious in in doing that because there isn't very much that there isn't very much that we we do on the internet that that's uh exciting at all or you know there's very little romantic agency and i mean romantic in the 
the other sense. There's very little romantic agency on the Internet, like, wow. Then, which is another reason why it's been hard to do, I think, hard to render the world of Neuromancer on, on the screen because, you know, hackers, what do they do? They sit in front of his keyboard and drink coffee. <laughs> yeah. There's, you know, what do they do? It's There's like no the relationship real, tension here. <laughs> yeah. The real thing where, you know, and, and the drama takes place in, I get, for want of a better term, cyberspace, which is, doesn't exist. Is is There's actually no such thing. And we have nowhere to go. It's like I got the idea of cyberspace in part from uh, walking, walking by early games arcades and seeing kids, kids immersed in these games to the extent that it seemed to me they were like having out of body experiences. And if they could have, they would have climbed right up on top of the thing and, and through the screen, and been wrestling with those big big old pixels hand to hand and, and and I thought well it's kind of a real space it's like kind of a real space and, and that was the, the beginning of that idea for me well William it's always a pleasure you're always welcome on Tech Nation well thank you so much for having me back hope you come back see us again I, I will Thank you. My guest today is William Gibson. His book is Agency, a second offering in the Peripheral Trilogy. It's published by Berkeley, an imprint of Penguin Random House. For Tech Nation, I'm Moira Gunn. Tech Nation and its regular segment, Biotech Nation, are produced at the studios of KQED-FM in San Francisco. Executive producer is Matt Gardner. The director of technical production is Monte Carlos. And audio engineers include Howard Gelman, Seal Muller, and Larry Upton. Our theme music was composed by Ann Nocktrieb-Zessiger and Robert Powell, with title creation provided by NameLab Incorporated of San Francisco. Program information and Internet audio is available on the web at technation.com. Tech Nation and Biotech Nation are productions of Tech Nation Media. I'm Paul Lancorn.